younger people are exploring and collecting and expanding their horizons. And older people are savoring, focusing, investing in emotional goals because those goals are realized in the doing. Welcome to the On Wisdom Podcast with Igor Grossman and Charles Cassidy. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We will discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. Firstly, thank you to all the listeners. Um, thank you for the ratings on iTunes and the excellent feedback we've been getting. It's very encouraging to know that people are enjoying what we're doing. This is episode 12, and after much debate between Igor and I, we... We had some back and forth about the title. Um, my first, my first title, Eagle suggested, was misleading, which I thought was a sort of a character assassination. It is social and emotional aging is what we've gone for, and we're very excited. We have a very, very special guest today. We have Laura Carstensen, who is a professor of psychology and the Fairly S. Dickinson Jr. Professor in Public Policy at Stanford University. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I wonder if Laura, rather than me, sort of do. Um, uh, an insufficient introduction, you could perhaps sort of tell us a little bit about who you are and, and, and what you sort of focus on in your work very briefly. Sure. I am a lifespan developmental psychologist, and I'm interested in the ways that people change a- across adulthood, in particular, how emotional processing and attention change as people grow older. I understand um, you are founding director of the Stanford Center on Longevity. So what is, is there a sort of catchy mission that they have that pe- would enable people in a sort of a snapshot to understand what, what you guys are trying to do there? Yes. To uh, put it uh, very simply, we are redesigning human aging. How's that? Whoa. <laughs> okay. That's you sound, you're going to be busy. Yeah, we're busy. Yeah, I've watched a, a couple of your talks, actually, in, in, in getting some background for this episode. And um, you mentioned this idea that the life expectancy uh, that was added, or the years of you know increased life that were added in the 20th century, is equal to all the increases in life expectancy that were added in the entire history of humanity prior to that point. If I, is that right? Did I understand that correctly? Yes, c- uh, combined. Yes, right. yes. That seems <laughs> extraordinary. You, it, it is extraordinary. And, and I... I think it's important for people to appreciate that because when we hear discussions about aging, uh, you know, they tend to get a little bit, you know, sort of slow and sad and, you know, kind of like, oh, yeah, we're getting older and older. Societies are getting older. But this is a spectacular cultural achievement in human history. And to add 30 years of life expectancy in a century means that we've got a lot of accommodating to do. Uh, the lives that we've been living throughout history have been short, and now they're long, and we need to rethink what that means. Yeah, and you said um, for the for the first time, pe- the majority of people that are born, I, you said, I think, phrased it nicely, you said they get to grow old, which is a nice way of thinking about aging. Right. Essentially, our ancestors in the 20th century kind of solved the problem of premature death. People died at all ages, and the most vulnerable were the youngest among us. It's uh, Death was so common and took people so quickly, and again, regardless of age, uh, that death wasn't particularly strongly associated with old age. In fact, the most vulnerable, as I said, were, were the youngest. Uh, so uh, improvements in, in culture and sanitation and agricultural technologies and medical science and public health allowed people to survive those kinds of insults that we were experiencing throughout history so that people now true as you said have the opportunity to grow old Mm. that's really interesting but does that mean that there were no older people previously i mean it doesn't sound quite right so i think uh Mm -hmm. one one interpretation that i heard is that what happened in the past is that there was a lot of child mortality like infant mortality correct there have to our knowledge been old people for you know, many, many thousands of years, some right. people made it to, to old age. In mm-hmm. fact, there's no reason to believe that we are genetically hardier than our ancestors were 10,000 years ago. So it isn't that we have somehow, through natural selection, become more robust or anything mm-hmm. like that. But most people died early. And right. um, when you say it's mostly children, it, it looks like child mortality accounted for about half solving child mortality, I should say, about half of the life expectancy gains. And that happened in the first half of the 20th century. That's where we saw this dramatic reduction in child and infant mortality. But the second half of the 20th century, we began to see life expectancy go up in adulthood. 
Mm-hmm. And this surprised a lot of people because they were assuming, you know, it was really about the kids and, you know, but people wouldn't be healthier as they grew older. Uh, but they are. And medical science, largely through the prevention of second heart attacks, brought about increases in life expectancy in adulthood. And they're still going on today in adulthood, life expectancy in adulthood, not in childhood. Right, in right. Okay, so here's a, a personal question. So like a few personal questions to start before we dive into the more theoretical and empirically driven work. Uh, so this is to uh, you, Laura, and to you, Charles. So what age have you enjoyed the most so far? And I'm, I'm asking that because I think I'm the youngest one among the three of us. <laughs> and I just want to know what to look forward to. Oh, maybe, maybe it's not ahead of you, Igor. Maybe it's in the past, you know. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> um, well, I'll, I'll dive in first briefly. I think I quite like the system where you get to be every age for one year, which is sort of the system we have, right? So it's, it's pretty good. You get to be 23 for a year. That gets a bit boring. Then you get to be 24 for a year. And, and so it goes. If I had to pick a year, though, uh, I I quite like – so I'm 42, I think. I quite liked being 32. That was quite good. Out of my 20s. I think once you're in your late 20s, you're, it's a bit like, oh, you kind of – you're sort of a bit too old to be young, but a mm-hmm. bit too young to be old. But I think kind of 32, 33 was good. It was like – the beginning of a new era of so sort of become like a young middle-aged person at that point. And that was, I enjoyed that. So that's, so I'm saying so far, you know, who knows what's to come. So that was after your motorcycle uh, adventure in India. That was way after that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> what about you, Laura? Boy, that's an interesting answer, Charles, and an unusual one, because for, for most people, they say it's the age that they are. Um, and very few people want to go back to the 20s. And so you, right. you push that a little bit into the 30s. But yeah. they have done studies asking people what age they would like to be. And almost nobody says they want to redo the 20s. <laughs> and very few people say they want to do the 30s over again. Yeah, interesting, um, yeah. interesting, too. The older people get, the older the ages that the, the best age was. Huh. Um, but my best age, I'm 65, and my best age so far is 65. Now, I've only, I only turned 65 recently, but I, life just seems to get better over time, and, and I feel very fortunate for that. But I also feel a little bit like what, some, of, some of what makes aging interesting is you never lose the ages you've been. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I remember and can almost re-experience 23, but a 23-year-old can't do that for 65. You know? mm-hmm. And so... There's something about us where we we're, we're still who we were at these earlier stages in life, but also more complex. I think. Right. So we accumulate all these different experiences. We don't just sort of leave them behind. Yes. Right. But the, I, I always worried about that one, though, because sometimes when I think about that, it's like, oh, I can re-experience that. That it reminds me that our memories and how we reconstruct them often, mm-hmm. you know, biased. And it's not really what we experience. It's just like Danny Kahneman says, people don't even care what they actually experience. They care about the picture thereafter that they create. Um, exactly. So- but Igor, that's why it gets better. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> you construct and weave these stories uh no no, no nobody made claims here about uh, the veracity of those uh th- those stories but uh people do tend to remember more of the positive than the negative and so sure. uh, that may be why life continues to feel good okay so another question um also of a personal nature what are you looking forward to about getting older again mm. charles maybe you can get started Ooh. Ah, ooh. <laughs> what do I think is I've, I've, you know, I've read a lot of Laura's work and I know that I really should be looking forward to getting older. Um, it doesn't, <laughs> um, intuitively, it, I, I'm not feeling it, but intellectually, um, I, I know that I've got lots to look forward to. I quite like the idea of, um, having seen different different sort of circles of uh, and mm-hmm. arcs in sort of politics and society kind of things loop around and having seen things mm-hmm. before, I quite like, you know, having that sort of perspective of saying, it's okay, it's not as bad as you think. So like, for example, now we have this crazy political situation, but say my father-in-law, he can say, well, you know, this this feels a bit like the Nixon era or something. You can say that's bad to compare to the Nixon era, but it it gives a sort of sense of calm. It's like we have uh, weathered such things before, so panic not. So I quite quite look forward to that sense of perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So 
So wait, so the, he compares uh, the American situation to the Nixon era, not the Brexit, though, right? Uh, no, no, bre- he, no, no, no. Let's not get into Brexit. <laughs> That's without precedent, I think. Uh, yeah. I, I, I agree, uh, Charles. I think what you get with aging is a, a, a perspective. Mm. Uh, and, and you come to put into context all sorts of experiences. And, and, and one of the things I think we learn as we grow older is that uh, bad times pass, um, you know, as you're talking about in certain political turmoil, uh, that these, these times will pass. But the other thing that we come to realize is that good times pass too. And because we know that, we come to savor the good times. Mm-hmm. And I think we come to put in perspective uh, the bad times. And and so it allows, I think it allows us more kind of stability and in a, in a, in a sense that we'll be okay, that somehow we'll manage. And at the same time, to focus on the good. That's encouraging. That's you know, what I like best about getting old is doing whatever, more and more of what I want and less of what other people want me to do. That right. I think is, for me, that's the best silver lining about it. That's really interesting because it suggests some kind of a more uh, what psychologists call this personal agency sense that you can uh, pursue what you want uh, instead of what other people uh, constrain you to do. But it seems to me that part of experience-based wisdom is to re- sometimes to realize that that's not always feasible to do what you want and you just have to adjust and, um, and and part of sort of like I understand that not everything that you may want to do is something that you should be doing. Right, right. So, so uh, here's a final, um, uh, more personal question for today. <laughs> well, maybe we'll get to more of those too. Uh, but we, we sort of brought up the positive aspects uh, of aging. Uh, now, what about other things? What are the things that uh, you guys are still worried about uh, getting older? Mm. Mm. Um, there, well, there, there are scores of, of challenges that, that aging presents. And I, right. I, I would say the physical aspects of aging are the most challenging of all. Age is associated with increasing risk for almost all diseases. Right. Uh, with age, even under normal conditions, you know, free of diseases, uh, we're more likely to be injured. And then we're more, it takes longer to repair. So uh, there are real problems with physical aging as we experience it today. Uh, and then there are lots of other problems with aging. There's ageism. There are right. many people today saying that they want to work and they like their work. They want to work longer and employers saying not so fast. And they want to find ways for graceful exits to move people out of the workforce instead of in. Um, there are a lot of problems with the financial kind of norms and models that we have and Again, for, from my perspective, that's because of this mismatch between the social societal institutions that are supposed to help mm-hmm. people support themselves and the length of the lives we're living. So we have these pension systems set up uh, that didn't account for people living 30 years longer. And so those are right. strained and individuals yep. Are, yep. are afraid and, and finding it very difficult to be able to save enough money to retire for 30 years. So we, we've got a lot of work to do. I, I, you know, I think of this increase in life expectancy as one of the greatest challenges of the 21st century. It seems to be a sociopolitical thing, too, about the uh, retirement and life expectancy. If the life expectancy is moving, then there is always a question if you want to support the uh, retirement system now with larger number of larger percentage of people over a certain age, should you be pushing the retirement age too? And I, I've seen many countries, uh, uh, well, some countries like right now, uh, most recent example, uh, largest example being probably Russia, where people uh, normally in favor of Putin, uh, <laughs> shockingly, but they really did like his last, uh, most recent sort of uh, agenda because there are a lot of older people in Russia too, and he tried to push the retirement age. And uh, that was the only thing that really brought a lot of people like to uh, an uproar. We say that his, uh, his ranking started to go down on the polls. So there is that political issue too. I was going to say in the French yeah, riot, yeah. When when um, we discuss or the government discusses increasing retirement age, um, people don't like the idea of changing uh, retirement age. And, and, you know, it makes sense when you think that this is something that people have been promised throughout their working lives. And then suddenly the, the, the rules change. And uh, yeah. I, I can see why people 
are um, uncomfortable. There have been some places where they've just gradually increased retirement age. Yep. You know, like every couple of years, you add three more months to retirement age and people accommodate to that much better. But it's hard when somebody suddenly says, we want you to work five years longer than you expected. Um, right. So, so I, you know, you can see both sides of this. Yeah, I mean, okay, I, I obviously, I might think differently if I was about to retire. I might be a, a pretty annoyed. However, um, uh, you're, yeah, maybe you have to work five years longer, but that's because you're getting X number more years of good health. You know, it's not like you're just going to have to work on you know, with your double, doubled over back and hobble around. You know, the reason that people might be being asked to work longer is because they're getting more life, right? That's exactly right. On the one hand, on the other hand, it is not coming even evenly. It's not that's being right. evenly distributed in the population, and that's the problem. That's even mm. the problem with raising retirement ages, right? And across countries too. Yes. Oh, yeah. Eligibility. So, so people have been arrived in the United States. Every cohort in the last fifty years that arrived at old age, that has reached 50, sixty-five. Um, has been healthier than the one before it. And you look at that and you say, well, then why in the world should young people be paying for these people not to work? And uh, the reason is because these added years, even of life expectancy, have been given in the last 50 years primarily to the college educated and not to the rest of the population. So it's, you know, I'd like to see systems that during this transition period, I'd like to see us offering carrots instead of, you know, the, the stick model of, of saying, no, you're going to work longer no matter what, but maybe thinking of policies where we have much more generous disability policies that would help people who really are finding it hard to work retire earlier, but also incentivizing people to work longer who are healthy. It tends to be separating naturally that way, by the way. The people Mm -hmm. who are working longer voluntarily and want to work longer are people who are healthy and educated, in part because they have jobs and careers that they're dedicated to, uh, that they enjoy, that's part of their identity. So, you know, look at college professors, you know, a whole lot of them are working much longer uh, than uh, college professors worked 25 years ago. And they say things like, what would I do if I didn't do this? This is this is who I am. Uh, (laughs) That's right. So there is this kind of natural split. The people who want to retire early tend to be people who are working jobs where those jobs are not as appealing and not part of their identity. Well, it's really interesting because some of this uh, aging, ageism stereotypes uh, that seem to uh, develop and exist in the society are often driven by, uh, according to some research, by this kind of uh, beliefs that the older adults, they're taking my spot that I deserve. And it seems like that if there is this natural divide, especially in uh, countries such as the United States, where you have this inequality and access to uh, Mm -hmm. uh, health providers and so on, then uh, for younger adults who have a college degree, there will be a potentially a greater uh, threat, probably an objective threat, because they, they, all the adults are still occupying the jobs, whereas mm-hmm. for young adults without a college degree, that may not necessarily be the case. So it seems almost paradoxical. Yeah, you know, people make this claim a lot. You know, the older people, mm-hmm. if they don't retire, are taking jobs from younger people. And, and it's yeah. so reminiscent for me of the... 1970s and the era when women started entering the workforce. Right. That's exactly what people said. They said, oh, Mm -hmm. yeah, well, women want to work, but, you know, they're going to take jobs away from men who need jobs. And that didn't happen. What happened is we had more jobs. (laughs) More people in the workforce increases uh, Mm -hmm. GDP, increases uh, money that families have to spend, increases the demand for for more products and more productivity. And so in most systems, there isn't a zero-sum game where there are only a certain number of jobs, and if somebody's holding one, somebody else can't hold it. That's not the way the workforce tends to work. Mm-hmm. There are some systems. There can be a family-owned business where, you know, as long as Uncle Joe's going to stay at the head of the business, then, you know, it's not going to give an opportunity to, you know, a young young Robbie. Uh, but and, and universities are set up that way with tenure systems because That's they right. do have a fixed number of lines that they can have. But that is those are exceptions. In most mm-hmm. places, workforces will grow with more people in those workforces. So I do. I think it's an easy thing to say, and it's a frequent thing that right. people say is that older people are are taking from the young. But I don't think there's a lot of good evidence for that. That's really interesting. So, um, Laura, I want to ask you about the socio-emotional selectivity theory. I want to get into that because that's the sort of big juicy idea of, of, of our conversation. But I wanted to ask just before that, how, how has emotion become, it seems like emotion has made a bit of a journey from being a sort of the soft end of 
psychology it's sort of made a bit of a journey to sort of the harder end of things how has that happened and that sort of seems to intertwine with with your career as well so maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how we've got here where we're, we're sort of taking emotion much more seriously in sort of realms of psychology Right. Uh, you know, as I look over the, the, the history of the field of psychology, I think there's been a, a theme of a, a struggle to be a legitimate science. And to be a legitimate science, you have to have observable measurements and replicable measurements. And so there was even in the heyday of behaviorism, people saying you shouldn't study cognition. You shouldn't look inside the mind because we can't measure it precisely. But I can right. tell you how many times somebody reaches for a donut, you know, so we'll just count that many times. But we won't think about the mind. And really, that came from this, I think, this real interest and dedication and, and for some really good reasons, right, to, to have a verifiable, replicable science. At one point, it became clear with the cognitive revolution that we really did need to think about what people were thinking if we were going to predict what they would do. And, and mm -hmm. the evidence just continued to mount that cognition was was important and 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 then we moved in psychology to an era where we there were some really exciting advances being made in understanding memory and, and learning and we saw that we could inform that with access to to thought what people were telling us they were thinking but i think and i think because of that history where we were continually struggling to to legitimize the science People really tried to stay away from emotion because they felt mm. like that was just too fuzzy. And, and I will also add, I think it was too fuzzy for <laughs> a long time because the only way we had access to it was by self-report. And self-report alone is not a particularly good measure when you have to depend on that alone. So I can tell you that I'm feeling sad right now. And I'm the only one who has access to that. You can't get any, you know, nobody else can see right. it, can measure it. And I can tell you on a scale, mostly it was scales, one to 10. So one to 10, how sad are you? And, you know, that, that's not something that, that makes people real excited as a science. And so I think people were kind of staying away from it. They just felt it was too fuzzy. So how, let's let's get into this, this uh, theory uh -huh. now. So um, could you tell us a little bit about how this theory works. I mean, there's, I know this other theory, this Baltes idea, which is this selective optimization with compensation theory. And then there's the, the socio-emotional selectivity theory. Are they linked? Maybe you could tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about how one, did it grow, did one grow out of the other or are they quite distinct? Well, they, they evolved in parallel. Paul and Margaret Baltes, who developed selective optimization with compensation were very good friends of mine and very close colleagues. And I published a fair amount with Margaret when she was alive. We would have many, many, many conversations about SOC, which is SOC, the acronym right. for Selective Optimization <laughs> Compensation, and uh, SST, as that's, that's Socio-Emotional Selectivity Theory for short. Um, importantly, SOC is, is not a theory. It, it's a model. Um, mm -hmm. It is a broad uh, framework in which to think about development. But it doesn't make particular predictions, hypotheses about any kind of content. I think Paul and Margaret often thought that socio-emotional selectivity theory could be a theory that would test the model. And mm -hmm. uh, there has been some effort to do that. And I've always thought it was interesting. But I was never – I wasn't trying to do that when I developed the theory. And I think the piece of it that didn't quite fit – from my perspective, was the optimization piece. I see. Um, I, I also thought, because I was trying to describe and predict something that happened, but wasn't saying it was necessarily in an effort to improve. It was rather something that seems to people seem to do, you know, under certain conditions. And, and I also don't think of it as compensation. So Paul, Paul Baltus really felt that every change that happened with aging that was positive was the serendipitous outcome of something negative. And that's really mm, what selective optimization is too. It's like people grow older, they begin to lose. So then how do you deal with this loss? That's right. And that there were, were some ways that people approached loss that actually improved and helped them optimize functioning in increasingly narrow domains. So that's the, the model. Mm. Socio-emotional selectivity theory is kind of free of that. I One of the aspects of it that I'm, proudest of, I think, is that it doesn't presume loss as the basis. 
And, and it always seemed untenable to me that all developmental theories of aging were based on loss. You know, it's, why, would, why would we say there's only one way, one reason uh, that people may change over time? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there are other reasons. So for the listeners, can you, the developer of this theory, could you just give us a, a quick little summary so people know what we're talking about? <laughs> yeah, that's what a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so socio-emotional selectivity theory is a theory of motivation that is grounded fundamentally in the uniquely human ability to monitor time. And many species monitor time from you know, clock time, calendar, you know, seconds passing, minutes passing, even mm-hmm. calendar time. But lifetime is something that, to our knowledge, only humans experience. That is, everyone listening to this conversation and the three of us talking all know that we are not going to live forever. And we also have some sense, you know, as we joke about age and so on, right, about how much time we have left. And the idea behind this theory is that we're always taking account of time and time left, sometimes explicitly, but always at some subconscious level. And so because goals are always set in temporal context, the temporal context in which people are setting goals changes as people grow older. So the older you are, on average, uh, the less time you have in your future. And the very simple prediction of this theory is that when time is limited, people focus on the goals that they will uh, can realize in the moment in the doing. And when time is unlimited, people invest in goals and pursue goals that will pay off somewhere down the line sometime in the future. Mm -hmm. So what happens is that younger people are exploring and collecting and expanding their horizons and older people are savoring focusing, investing in emotional goals, because those goals are realized in the doing. And that's simply what the theory is about. So what what does this mean in terms of how people choose to spend their time? So you've spoken about the motivations sort of. So if, if you have a short time horizon, you mm-hmm. invest more in feeling, you know, in well-being or or having positive emotions. How, how does this translate right. into the kind of things people will actually do? It, it means that people will be more likely to spend time with people they know well. For one, then those are people they know they're going to feel good or feel bad with, right? So they're, they're, they're more predictable. But also people who they love, who they really care about. And so those kinds of, of preferences and social partners tend to drift toward people who are known, special loved ones. And then for younger people, known special loved ones had the downside of not being terribly information rich. Mm-hmm. And so since they're pursuing expanding horizons and learning new things, they're often, they prefer often to spend time uh, with novel social partners uh, because those are people from whom they will learn. And that's the kind of difference that we see there. And, and I, maintain that that's a, a function of time horizon i was i was thinking about this earlier in the day and um igor often comes up with this sort of more you know cynical russian take on things i thought <laughs> i thought what, what would eagle say and is there or have you looked into this idea that um it, could there be a self-interest at play with older people in sense that because when, when eagle was talking about what do what do we fear about growing old my yeah. which my fear about growing old is is becoming dependent again you know you you go through a phase of life when you're independent and you know you were dependent when you were a kid you gain independence in the middle age and then you have to return and it's kind of like a shakespeare kind of you know arc um and then so we're going to return to this state of dependence and the people that are going to be looking after us are going to be our closest yeah. loved ones you know not sort of random people we might meet at parties um so is there any sort of sense that you know, there's a self-interest, it, you know, I, I'm going to need these people. It's, it's time to, to really, yeah. you know, shore up those close connections. Yeah, yeah it's a good question. And, and years ago, Helene Fung and I did a series of studies where we were asking people about their preferences for social partners as a function, mm-hmm. whether they were a function of social support or social importance to them. Mm-hmm. And right. clearly what people were telling us is they wanted to spend time with those who were important, not the ones that who would support them. And and keep in mind that for most of adulthood, 
support is flowing down through the generations, not up. So it is absolutely the case, what you're saying for most people, that toward the very end of their lives, they need help. Um, and the people most likely to give it to them are people who are going to be genetically related to them and all, you know, on average, and they're more likely to be people close and relatives and so on. But that's not most of it aging either. It's the end of life that mm-hmm. that happens. And if you look at financial support and so on, far more money flows down through the generations than up and, and, and support and advice, help, you know, and so on. So I, I think it's important to, to keep that kind of background um, yeah. in, in mind. But, but here's what I think is even more compelling about this. So we began to do a series of studies where we manipulated time horizons to mm-hmm. see if those preferences that were being reported by older and younger people for either emotionally close or um, novel social partners would vary as a function of time horizons. And we would ask in a series of studies we did, we'd ask younger people the, the question, who do you want to spend time with? And we'd give them different options. They'd pick novel social partners. And we'd say, now, imagine you're about to move across country. You're going by yourself without family or friends. Now, who do you choose? Now, they chose social partners mm-hmm. who were close to mm-hmm. them. And so we, we thought, you know, it wasn't even about death there. It was just about time. You know, you have less right. time to spend with people. Now you focus on people who you really care about. Then we said to older people in some studies, now we want you to imagine, you know, we'd ask them, who do you want to spend time with? They'd tell us it's their close loved ones. Say, imagine you just got a call from your physician and you were told you have about 20 years longer than you expected to live and relatively good health. Who do you choose? And under those conditions, older people chose novel social partners, even more than younger people did. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They were off exploring and they were just as sick or feeble or whatever you want to say as they were five minutes earlier when we asked them the question. So we began to think it's actually really, there is some really something important here about. So, so does that mean um, this is kind of within our control then, you know, to a certain extent, you know, you hear about, and I don't know, uh, what evidence there is for this, but you know, you hear about one aspect of meditation is this idea that you're, you know, trying to focus on the present, etc. Is there any sort of tools or exercises in in that kind of realm that encourage people to think in this sort of short time horizon way? Yeah, you know, younger people often come up to me after I give a talk, like a public talk or a lecture or something. They'll come up and they'll say. I like that, you know, the way that older people are living. How do I get to be old? You know, yeah. I, want, I, want to, I like that version. That's much better. That, your message has definitely them, worked if, you, if they're saying that to you. After. Right. <laughs> people want to be old. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I say be careful what you wish for because I see this model as very adaptive through life. Younger people do have to endure exploration and negative emotions and meeting new people and taking risks to prepare for a long future. If there's a silver lining to the aging, it's that you don't have such a long future to prepare for. And so you get to do more of what you want, spend time with who makes you feel good. You right. don't have to make those trade-offs. So if I may interject there, so one thing that we discussed earlier uh, in one of our very first episodes, I think the second uh, episode, which was called On Death, uh, was a related topic of like what happens to you when you think about death. And we discussed this ideas of uh, the so-called terror management theory, which right. has a very different take on what happens when you think about death, which right. much more sort of like a um, negative side to it. So that people pretty much become assholes when they think about <laughs> death, according to that theory. Right. Uh, right. So, uh, so what is your take on that and how do you reconcile that? Is that because most of those studies were done on young adults? Now there's also questions how robust are those findings and people uh, raise that issue too. But it's, it seems to be that the majority of those studies use different procedure, but also focus more on younger adults. <laughs> yeah, and they've done a couple studies with older adults and they don't find oh, the effects. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So it, it, interesting. Yeah, you don't see the same thing. There, there's also a key difference in how we're thinking about mortality and how right. they're they're talking about threats. You know, you're right. you're going to be assaulted now, right? And I don't think that there's any reason to to believe that death itself comes without you know with 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 a uh, well for some people it does, but I mean that that the death is welcomed. That's not what I'm saying in my theory at all. But it's that right. I, at 65. I am closer to the end of my life than both of you are in all likelihood, right? Just odds are. 
but I'm not thinking I'm going to die tomorrow. And I feel like my future has still got lots of opportunities in it. So it's not yes and yes and no. It's it's focusing on mortality, knowing we have a limited time to pursue our goals, to chase our dreams, to spend time with our loved ones. Mm-hmm. In, in some basic sense, it's why life's important. It's what makes us happy. It's what makes us motivated to get things done, to be good right. people. To And so that's the kind of mortality. That's how I'm thinking about mortality. It's you have a long time to do things or you have a short time to do things. But I'm thinking less about the actual death than the terror management people are. Okay, so Laura, there is another uh, very important aspect of the social-emotional selectivity theory of the SST, and that is the link to emotions. Mm -hmm. And especially this uh, work about the positivity effect, or some people call it lack of negativity effect. Uh, So what is it and how does it impact aging according to your research and your theoretical framework? Yeah. So, you know, for for the first 10 or 15 years, as my students and colleagues and I were developing this theory and testing it, we were really looking at sort of social networks and social preferences. Right. And then we also thought because people are pursuing emotionally meaningful goals that could help explain why older people are in better mental health and on balance doing better in day-to-day life emotionally compared to younger people. And then we began to think, about um, uh, the ways in which goals direct our attention, right? So mm-hmm. you know, human brains don't operate like computers. We don't take in all information, but rather we see in the environment and hear and sense in information that's relevant to our goals. And so we started to think if people are pursuing emotionally meaningful goals, they may be more likely to see meaning and emotionally positive things in their environment. We And when we began this, we weren't, it wasn't as much of a hypothesis about positive over negative as it was a question about emotion and the mm-hmm, salience mm-hmm. of emotion and people's cognitive processing. Because we thought, you know, if, if, if your goal that you're pursuing is about emotional meaning, you may attend to negative as much as positive. So we were right. actually kind of, you know, uh, on the fence about that. Uh, but in study after study, whether we were looking at faces and attention or memory, we found this relative preference in cognitive processing for positive stimuli over negative. And we saw this over and over again in, in our research. There were some people who didn't find it, which I can come back and I think we've resolved that at this point. But it, but it looked like a really robust effect. And we think that it does have something to do with people's well-being in day-to-day life. So if I wake up in the morning and I look out the window, I can see that the banister is you know, missing a nail or something and be irritated, or I can see the the bird that's sitting on the banister and think, you know, what a wonderful life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and we think that some of that is what's happening because of goal-directed attention. Very interesting. So uh, at this point, would you say it's more about the positivity or is it about the avoidance of negativity? So because those mm-hmm. two things are often converging, mm-hmm. but sometimes uh, they lead to different uh well, the goal may be the same, but the right. behavior may look very different. And I and I think it is an avoidance of negative. Um, mm-hmm. uh, although it's that, you know, again, the details of that are, are, are being hammered out. It looks like people initially attention in the first, you know, half of a second, you know, goes to negative and then away from. So it does look like people are looking away from negative more than they're looking toward positive. Also, if you look at emotional experience in day-to-day life and our longitudinal study of experience sampling, on balance, emotion in day-to-day life improves, but it's because of a reduction in negative, not an increase in positive. Mm-hmm. Positive experience is remaining stable across adulthood. It's not getting worse in any way. It's very stable, but negative goes down. So if you're just as happy as you were when you were young, but now you're not as angry and uh, sad, then emotionally, you know, you're doing better. So it's a, it's a subtraction of negative rather than addition of positive. That's what we're thinking. Right, right. That's all the evidence I know of is for that. There is a, a there's an occasional study that finds a very very small increase in positive. Uh, if you look at effect right. sizes, it's fairly small, but that's not reliable uh, across studies. But it's very reliable across studies that you see this decrease in. So one big topic here, and uh, now we're moving into this question of reliability and robustness. Uh, uh, there are two questions that I have that I think our listeners may be interested in. The first one is, 
What about culture? In different cultures, the notion of well-being or what it means to be happy may look differently. Sometimes right. it's about uh, focusing on the positive. Like certainly in North America, in Canada, in the United States, that's what we emphasize. You have to be happy. It's almost like the mantra, which has its exactly. downsides too. Yes, and then on the yeah. other hand, you have the uh, maybe Russians or something like that who yeah, like savor right. the negative. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and East Asians who try to balance. I mean, these are all stereotypes, of course, uh, but, yeah. but there are some philosophical traditions that yes. uh, do emphasize the balance or even emphasize to focus on the negative, sort of like as a, a threat uh, detection system or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so have you tested this uh, positivity effect in different cultures? And uh, what are your thoughts on the implications of the positivity effect for people who may define the notion of happiness and well-being differently? Mm -hmm. Well, first, let me say I agree with everything you just said. And yes, we have looked at uh, this effect across cultures. And it, again, if, but to put it in theoretical context, the, the, mm -hmm. the theory says that people are pursuing meaning, emotional meaning in their lives more right. under shorter time horizons, which tends to come with age, but it doesn't say, it's not about positive per se in the American definition of what's positive from theoretically, it's about meaningful information, right. uh, meaningful stimuli. So uh, one of the first studies we ran, we were really interested in this question also about culture and would we see this in other cultures? And we ran a study uh, in Korea with South Korean uh, participants, and we used the same stimuli we'd used in, in some other studies where these were um, IAPS images that people mm -hmm. looked at, right? So these images that have been normed for being positive or negative or neutral. And right. we ran the study with young middle-aged older people in Korea, and it, it was a wash, no effect, uh, no evidence for right. a positivity effect. And uh, we had also, however, asked people to re-rate those images after they were done the experiment to tell us whether they were positive, neutral, or negative. And, it, and then we saw the effect again. It, it looked like it was a, a strong replication of the positivity effect, but we had to use people's ratings of those images. And the one that, that stuck in my mind was uh, uh, one of the neutral images among the IAPS images is a teacup. It's just sitting there, a coffee cup, you know, mm -hmm. and Koreans rated that as positive and it's neutral <laughs> for Americans, right? And so that's, so what, what I expect and theoretically I would predict is that, yes, you see cultural variation in the content, but that you would see relative replicability across culture if you look at what is meaningful content by culture. And probably meaningful regulatory strategy, too, because, uh, you know, the, we talk here, uh, it seems to me, about uh, emotion regulatory strategies. How do you approach a different type of information? You, you, are, you can attune to it differently. You can uh, suppress uh, certain feelings you may have about the experience, or you may emphasize something else. You may think about it differently. So the different type of strategies. And it seems to me that, um, you know, maybe one strategy may be preferred in one cultural context. So if it's a suppression or attention away from the negative and towards the positive. And in another cultural context, it may be more about changing the meaning of the experience itself. And that was kind of like much more in light with this idea of dialectical uh, mm -hmm. reframing that is often uh, aligned with this uh, naive idea about uh, East Asian philosophy, either in Taoism or I don't think it's really in Confucianism, but, but uh, in, in some of the uh, East Asian philosophies, you certainly have this kind of focus on reframing of the experience mm -hmm. and focus on balancing it. Yes. When we talk about emotion regulation today and, and you know, sort of current psychology, almost all of the emphasis is on things like reappraisal or distraction or suppression. But we tend to leave out what, to my mind, is absolutely the most effective emotion regulation strategy, which is selection. That is, mm -hmm. I don't go there. You know, I don't talk to that person who mm -hmm. makes me angry. I don't have to reframe anything. You know, I'm just <laughs> and I think that's that it's the selection part of socio-emotional selectivity theory that I think is probably the piece that's driving it as most, much as anything. It's that People are making choices about how they spend their time and with whom they spend their time and pursuing certain kinds of goals increasingly more as they get older. And so they're not engaging in uh, situations that would that they would need to regulate mm. emotionally. That, that's 
So interesting. Um, so, okay, the last question here about the positivity effect. We alluded to that at the beginning, and you already mentioned about uh, the replicability and reliability of the effect. Some researchers, including uh, some of your prior collaborators, I think like Derek Isakovitz had this uh, meta-analysis on the positivity effect and found it for some aspects, not for other aspects. But now that has been a few years back. What do you think about the current status of this research uh, for attention, for other aspects of cognition, for emotional experiences? And how do you think, has it been, has it been resolved? Mm-hmm. Yes, I think it has been resolved. <laughs> um, right. So Derek published a, a meta-analysis based on a fairly small number of studies, most of which did not really test the positivity effect mm-hmm. uh, because they were studies either that had only young people, and most of the studies that he included in that had only young, so they didn't even have an age comparison. Positivity effect, by definition, is a relative preference for positive over negative compared to younger people preference mm-hmm. for positive over negative. So it's not in some absolute sense. I'm sure you can come up with a gory set of stimuli that young and old regardless are going to look yeah. <laughs> more to the gory than the other, you know, but you, you've got to have both ages in the studies right, in right. order to really look at the positivity effect. There was a, a meta-analysis published in 2014 that had over a hundred studies that did meet the criteria for positivity effect and find robust reliability for the effect but many people ignore the theoretical rationale for this effect, and then they'll mm-hmm. run a study that doesn't show it. And so we were particularly interested in a couple studies that were well-designed. Gruen and Baltus, one of the first uh, studies that didn't find this effect, right. um, was uh, conducted in Germany. And Paul and I talked about it a lot, Paul Baltus and I, because yeah. we, we wanted to figure out what was different because you saw it in one place, you did not another, we're thinking about culture, we're thinking about this and that. And it took us a long time before we realized that the instructions had one small but critical difference. And that is, in the study they ran where they didn't see the effect, they told the participants, this is a memory test. We want you to look at these information, this information and we'll ask you later what you remember. And all of our studies, these are incidental memory paradigms. We're just trying to see what people naturally, if you will, quote unquote, look at what they orient mm-hmm, to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so what what we feel they did was they gave people the goal in the study. Um, they told old people what they wanted them to do. And we know that they can do that. You know, it, it is it, theoretically, this is a goal directed effect. And so if you change the goal from what one might do uh, without constraints, then you don't see the effect. So we have now looked Mm. at that systematically and seen that in studies where you give people a goal, you don't see the effect in studies where you don't, you do. And so, yes, I think it's been resolved. And in a way that also provides even more uh, support for the idea that this is top-down motivated cognition that we're seeing. And it's in the service of emotion and emotion regulation. I think I, I know we're, we're getting short on time, but I really wanted to ask about this work you've done on regret because the sort of classic sort of stereotypical image you have of a, of a lonely, isolated old person, you know, not once you've listened to one of your talks, obviously that would change uh, your image of an old, old person, but um, the idea of, you know, someone sitting alone and reflecting on their life and, and this, this sense of regrets of things they did or didn't do. But it seems like your research is suggesting actually that old people have positive feelings around actions which are like uh, objectively regrettable. What's going on there? That seems completely uh, strange to me. Mm-hmm. Well, we were interested in regret because it is, you know, by definition, a, a, a negative experience that people have. But we were yeah, thinking right. in terms of the positivity effect and, and memory, you know, and retelling the past and thought it may be that people come to see kind of silver linings, you know, and and actions that mm-hmm. they wish they had not done earlier in life. And so we ran a study that sampled people across broadly across the lifespan, asking them about to name a regret and then to tell us about the emotions they were feeling associated with them. And we see that older people report just as many negative emotions in this case as younger people do associated with the regret but also add positive emotions. So it mm-hmm. looks like regret becomes uh, more complex. It doesn't, it's, it's not like it's, it's denial. It's not saying, you know, yeah. uh, I'm glad I did that. There wasn't yeah. anything wrong, but they would say yeah. things like it was wrong. What I did in that relationship, 
this was a person I cared about and I destroyed the relationship and it was a bad thing and I was the bad actor in it. And then they will go on and say, but you know, if I, if I had stayed with that person who I thought was the love of my life, I never would have mm. met my current wife who I love and I wouldn't have the family I have. Mm. And so they would talk about positive aspects of those behaviors earlier in life as well. Right. I wondered, because if I think about regret casually, just thinking about it, you think, why would we have this feeling of regret? And you could think, well, it's sort of, you know, might prevent you making bad mm-hmm. decisions in the future. And then I wondered if, you know, if you're c- closer towards the end of your life, you have fewer decisions to make ahead of you. So mm-hmm. it would make more sense to, or, to not feel so keenly mm-hmm. the, the downside of regret. And when you're younger, oh, yeah. it would make yeah. sense to feel the punch of regret a bit more because, you know, you could learn something more valuable in the, for yeah. the future. That's really interesting. And it, it makes sense to me. Yeah, really mm-hmm. interesting. So one other question that we have uh, here about aging is uh, related to the not so good news. I mean, me, it's me about, again being negative here. Okay, mm-hmm. we talk about this beautiful socio-emotional aspects of uh, growing older, but at the same time, health is declining, and that's not there's not not much you can do at least until now about some aspects of that. And so mm-hmm. your recent work, Laura, starts to suggest that uh, there are possible ways to incentivize both younger and older adults to take care better uh, take better care of their health. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you did and what you found? Yes. First of all, yes, you're you're right that physical health is an increasing problem as people grow older. Exercise to our knowledge is the best thing people can do for right. emotional, cognitive and physical aging. Mm. There's just no question as today it is the best thing you can do both aerobic exercise and strength training. So there, there's my public service announcement. <laughs> um, but older people are the most sedentary age group in the population. And so right. it's important to uh, see if we can design ways that older people will walk more and do more. So my colleagues and I uh, ran a study where we engaged young, middle-aged, and older people in a study where we just told them it was a study of walking originally. And we they came in the lab, we gave them a pedometer, and they went off and walked for a week measuring the steps. When they came back the second week, we said they've now been selected to participate in another part of the study. And uh, in this case, they would get money for mm-hmm. every step extra that they walked over their baseline and the following week. And there were different experimental conditions there. Two key ones were one was personal. So we're going to give you the money. And it was two cents a step. So people could have actually earned some money with this. And that we told them in one condition, we'll give you the money. And another condition, we said, we'll give the money to a charity of your choice. Uh, so one was for a social good and the other was for themselves. And we hypothesized that older people would walk more for the charity and younger people would walk more for the money for themselves. Right. What we found is that everybody walks the most for money for themselves. So regardless of age, <laughs> that was the finding. It did not support the part of our hypothesis. However, in the charity condition, older people did increase significantly their walking also. And younger people did not at all. I mean, uh, the way I tell the story is not a step for a charity. <laughs> <laughs> But older people were did increase their walking. And when in the next condition, then we remove the incentive. They're not being paid, but we give them the pedometer one more week. And older people continue to walk at the high levels, even after we remove the financial incentive. So it looks like older people, it, well, first of all, it looks like humans are going to do things that benefit them. So, you know, it wasn't, we didn't have this kind of selfless pattern of findings. But older people were willing to do things for others. And there are other studies. There's not a whole lot of work in this area, but there are a handful of studies that suggest similarly that older people care more about altruism. They express more compassion for Mm -hmm. others. They they display patterns and studies where they're, they're more invested in equity of wins and loses. And so there is something to me about this growing population of older people that we need to attend to and then find ways to tap this resource for societal good. Having a growing number of people in a society that care about the well-being of others and are emotionally stable and experienced and Igor in some of your work suggesting that they may solve highly conflicted you know conflicts better than younger people. We need in some circumstances yes. Yeah, in some, exactly. Yes. 
uh, just as a positivity effect in some circumstances. But if we can, yeah. if we can find a way to tap that, then we're going to be better off for having aging societies in some ways. Yeah, and it'll probably just be a fact that we have a more diverse uh, uh, a range of experiences in the possibly in the workforce can be of great benefit for for the society, uh, including for the innovation. Even though you don't think of again another bad stereotype about aging is that older adults are more conservative and uh, less innovative and not as creative. But that's not true. First of all, and then if you look at it on the more systemic issue, just having people with a more diverse set of perspectives and experiences can be very beneficial for the innovation, uh, can be very beneficial for the uh, business that one is running. So. Some of the work that I'm doing now, um, we're doing in collaboration with Mercer, this large uh, mm-hmm. uh, our, you know, consulting company. And I think some of the most exciting findings about workforce are about older people's influence on younger people in the workforce. So it, it looks like that the presence of older people in a work team increases the productivity of the younger workers. Um, Interesting. And What's going we, on How there? do you explain that? Yeah. yeah. Researchers studied three different kinds of work teams. These were people working um, on an assembly line. And some of the teams were all young and some were all old and some were a mixture of old and young. And the finding is that the mixed age teams were the most productive on the line. And if you look more closely, what I understand from this study is that young people are very fast and they also make a lot of mistakes. And old mm-hmm. people are slower, but they essentially don't make mistakes on this line with their experience. And so you put them together and you see productivity increase further. Um, Haig now Banshin, an economist at Mercer, has now looked at that in uh, some large companies where he can control the same, say, retail department uh, of a company in one part of the United States and compare it to another where they have more and less uh, older people in the mix. And finds the same kind of thing where you see productivity of the unit go up with the presence of older people. Wow. He thinks part of that may be emotional stability and that older workers, and we have some data suggesting this too, older workers are more likely to be invested in helping younger workers than the reverse. And younger workers, helping younger workers is not usually something of interest either uh, to young people. So they, I would be interesting to look at the quality of the interactions between those right. younger workers and older right. workers and uh, yeah. vice versa to see what exactly is happening there. So I, I really think uh, this is fascinating, this helping aspect and emotional aspect in particular. I'm with you. We're starting some of that work now. Well, that's a great practical implication. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you so much for being on uh, the show today. This was a really illuminating discussion. We learned so much. I I think I corrected some of my understanding of your prior work and really enriched enriched it dramatically. I don't think we revealed to our listeners how we initially wanted to call this episode, but maybe we'll keep it a secret, right, Charles? (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has made me think a lot about... I'm feeling positive, more positive than I was at the beginning of the episode about getting older. Um, So thank you, Laura, for that. That's going a gift that will hopefully last through my lifetime. So thank you very much. Fascinating. (laughs) Yes. And now it's time for the summary. Today we talked about aging. We started with the observation of the demographic shifts. Nowadays, most people can grow old. What years do we enjoy most today? Turns out most people want to be the age they are at. People remember more positive than negative experiences and with age start to savor good times more. Yet there is also a negative side to aging including the physical limitations, the physical decline, and the societal ageism. Today we talked about the retirement age and how for many people this can be a source of ageism. Depends on your age. Some people may represent uh, the retirement and the growing number of older people as a zero-sum game. For others, however, it is not a zero-sum game where you don't believe that Prevalence of older adults prevents you from getting a job. Next, we focused on the psychology of aging. In particular, we discussed the socio-emotional selectivity theory and how it differs from other major theories on aging that are prevalent in aging research. We talked about the role of compensation and whether uh, it should be uh, the key factor, whether we should presume that 
all there is to aging and the processes for aging is based on losses. Finally, uh, we talked about the key principles of the socio-emotional selectivity, that the expanding horizons for young adults and the possible shrinking time horizons for older adults could lead to different motivations, different relationships, and different emotions. We talked about the connection to previous episodes, and finally, we concluded by discussing the so-called positivity effect, the relative preference for positive over negative information that can be observed among older as compared to young adults, and how it is possibly mostly driven by the avoidance of the negative and can manifest itself across cultures when you focus on what is meaningful for a given cultural group. At the end, we talked about several implications, including those how to maintain the health among the younger and older adults. And that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening. Please continue uh, subscribing and rate us on iTunes or other devices. Till the next time.